This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel. And today, Jennifer Sherman joins us to talk about her new book, Dividing Paradise, Rural Inequality and the Diminishing American Dream, new from University of California Press. So Jennifer, if you would, why don't you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself and how it is you came to research and write this book. Okay. Um, Well, I am a professor of sociology at Washington State University. Um, And although I'm in a sociology department, I have studied rural sociology for most of my career, and in particular, uh, rural poverty and inequality. And I've also spent most of my career in uh, the West or the Northwest. Um, So in a lot of ways, this book was inspired by my previous book, which looked at uh, a logging community in Northern California, which was really isolated and had lost a lot of its jobs due to the spotted owl ruling and other kinds of changes in the industry and environmental changes. And I just uh, spent a year in that community really learning about how this economic devastation impacted them. And it was it was a pretty tough place. Um, and I first got the idea to study... The, the, the site that is um, the site of my current book, Paradise Valley in Washington State, honestly, because when I first visited it uh, on my way to do some outdoor recreation, I thought, wow, this place looks so much like that old place, except it's so different. Um, it has so much more going on. There's all sorts of amenities and cute little cafes. And it just, it seems so similar and yet so different. And I, I knew a little bit about the place and knew it had a similar history with industries like logging and ranching that have mostly declined across the Northwest. Um, But Paradise Valley looked so different. And I was really curious to know um, what was causing that change. Uh, I mean, I assumed it was the growth of amenity tourism there, which has a lot to do with it. But also, I was really curious to know what is the impact of that that transition from these kinds of land-based industries to something that's much more about um, preserving land for recreational use. Great. So now before people head off and start Googling, Paradise Valley is the name that you have given the place that that you have studied, correct? Not an actual, not the actual name of the actual place. Yes. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All of my work uses pseudonyms, um, mostly because these are really small places. <laughs> um, and I don't want to change their trajectories by just <laughs> announcing them to the world. 
So, so this, at least to me anyway, this is a book about the people of Paradise Valley. But why don't we start and, and dig in a little bit deeper. You started talking about just sort of what the place is like now. Tell us a little bit about what Paradise Valley is like and a little bit about its history. And then you made reference to uh, its efforts to build a new economy on amenity tourism, maybe let people know a little bit about what that is like. Uh, and then we can start talking about the people who live there. Okay. Yeah. Um, so Paradise Valley is a pretty isolated place in um, in Washington State in the Northwest. Um, it is a community that's kind of on the eastern side of the mountains, but, you know, pretty much nestled in the mountains. And it's, it's reasonably hard to get to, which means that, uh, well, it means many things, including that it wasn't really settled until um, by, by white settlers, I mean, until uh, the kind of 20th century, late 19th, uh, early 20th century is when we really start to see some uh, movement into this place. And then it had kind of a short history as um, a mining community, eventually ranching and logging and agriculture took over there. Um, And these industries dominated for maybe about 50 years until they began to see a lot of decline um, again, due to combination of environmental regulations and really just the industries themselves, um, particularly logging, um, was declining in the Northwest. Um, and so Paradise Valley was interesting in that it, it made a very concerted effort in the late 20th century to start developing some sort of tourism industry and really cashing in on its quite stunning location in the mountains um, and selling itself as a place where people could come and recreate. And over time, as those kinds of outdoor recreation activities have really grown in importance, the community has seen multiple waves of in-migration um, and second home ownership. So originally there was a growth in the you know second homes being owned by often people from the west side of Washington state uh, who just wanted a place, you know, in the mountains where they could escape. Um, and um, retirement be also became kind of a, a driver of real estate growth there. And then more recently, um, in I would say starting maybe in the 1990s and, and really accelerating in the 2000s, there's been a growth in younger in migrants, families moving there, um, maybe telecommuting, maybe giving up their, their jobs in the cities in order to start fresh in a rural community that's very pretty. And it's also known for being politically kind of liberal compared to a lot of rural communities. Um, and you've just seen a lot of growth in um, that kind of in-migration. So people that are still of working age and maybe raising children. So you, um, so talk, talk to us just a little bit about methods. So you undertook 84 interviews over a period of 10 months. Um, can you talk a little bit about that process and how you got, uh, how you got people to talk to you, how you, how you got them to open up and, and, uh, made it possible for you to learn a little bit about their own experience and their perceptions of the place? Yeah. Um, so this was, yeah, 10 month ethnographic fieldwork. Um, so basically, I began by moving there, um, just finding a place to live for the almost year that I was there. Um, and then once I was settled in, I also began doing volunteer work around Paradise Valley. Um, I volunteered at the uh, one of the public libraries. I volunteered at a couple of uh, support 
services, so a food bank, a family support center, um, and I basically offered my services to anyone who needed help around the valley. So that was one way to just kind of make connections and get to know people. And I um, reached out to the folks who um, were in positions of power in those places where I was volunteering and, you know, just asked for their help in recruiting and getting to know people. Um, and often they were very helpful in, in just kind of introducing me to people and saying, you know, this woman is doing interviews. And if you'd like to talk to her, um, you should you know, get in touch. Um, I also put up flyers all around the community. I put ads um, on their electronic bulletin board and really just kind of did everything I could to get word out through these various means um, between you know, just ads and flyers. And, and really a lot of it was just on the ground networking, just talking to people and asking them to introduce me to people and asking them to introduce me to people and giving out flyers at the end of interviews. Um, so it's, it's a lot of work <laughs> to get to know people <laughs> and, and to get people to trust you. Um, yeah. But um, I think people here were, were, were super friendly, very open to it. And I, I was very fortunate that so many people were willing to sit down with me on tape and, and occasionally people volunteered in do really interesting means like, you know, overhearing me do an interview in a cafe and saying, Hey, I heard you talking to that person. I've got <laughs> stories to tell you. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> so, um, so you wind up uh, categorizing folks into sort of two large groups, right? The old old timers and the newcomers. Why don't we take each of those in turn? Uh, which of which of those group would you like to start with? Tell us, tell us, pick a group and 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 tell us about them and and their experience of the place. Okay, um, I guess I'll start with the newcomers. So these were the the folks that really had moved into Paradise Valley mostly from more urban places, um, and particularly in recent years, they were really coming from bigger cities. And they were distinct in a, a few ways. And, you know, I've struggled with kind of how do you describe these two groups? And I, I chose these terms that really focus on length of time in the community, but it's really um, a proxy for a number of other things. It was really, that was that was the term that they used the most, so it made sense to use it. Um, but in addition to having lived in the community for shorter periods of time and, and the cutoff is sort of 20 years and, and people told me that across the valley, oh, you're you're not, you know, you're not really a local until you've been here about 20 years. Um, the newcomers tended to be quite distinct from the old timers in that they they had higher amounts of income and wealth. So just economically, they were often much better off. But they also tended to have higher levels of education. They were much more likely to have a college education or higher um, they tended to be politically quite liberal, um, so mostly they were Democrats and pretty staunchly so. Um, and then culturally, they were also somewhat different, so their their interests tended to be um, a little bit more urbane. Um, they were much more interested in you know things like art and music and dance and theater. Um, they were focused on different kinds of outdoor recreation activities as well. Um, much more interested in, you know, sort of running, hiking, biking, that kind of stuff, skiing, um, and less likely to to do, you know, motorized activities, um, less, not completely uninterested in things like hunting and fishing, but less experienced with that usually, less likely to, you know, ride horses or things like that. Um, so in all of those ways, they were, they were pretty distinct from the folks who had lived there for a long time. 
Um, and they also tended to have um, job backgrounds that were a little bit more professional, more white collar jobs um, versus the old timers who were, you know, the folks who had lived in this community a lot longer and tended to have histories in um, much, much more often the, the land-based industries that had dominated. So things like the forest service or the logging industry or ranching, um, they also tended to have lower incomes and less wealth overall. They tended to have less education, um, less likely to have a college degree. They um, had kind of, you know, different political interests tended to be more conservative uh, or a little bit agnostic. Um, and um, in terms of their the activities and, and leisure pursuits also a little bit different. So they were much more uh, likely to in, enjoy motorized vehicles like snowmobiles um, as recreation. They were more focused often on things like hunting and fishing and, and you know, kind of pursuits that I, I have encountered before in very rural areas. Uh, and these two groups geographically isolated as well, by and large? Um, to some degree, but that happened over time. Um, so not in the beginning, but over over time, you know, a lot of the people with fewer resources got pushed out of the larger land holdings, basically. So um, as you know, as in migration raised housing prices, you start to see new housing patterns develop. And so, yeah, a lot of the old timers that I interviewed were living in trailer parks um, or uh, really kind of primitive cabins and things like that. Um, but many of them had grown up in houses on acreage, um, but it was just a lot of them, you know, as adults couldn't afford to hold on to that or couldn't afford to buy anything themselves. So, I mean, you know, some of what you're describing, at least at, at this stage, sounds like a sort of pr pretty familiar story of gentrification. Yes? Yeah, I think absolutely. It is a story of rural gentrification. Um, and that is one of the most uh, problematic and, and kind of common outcomes of, of this kind of uh, dynamic, this in-migration. And we're seeing it, you know, ramp up more and more uh, in the post-pandemic time period. Um, but yeah, a lot of it is, is just a story about rising housing costs, um, but it's not entirely about that either. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So in, in, it's so let's maybe circle back and, and dig into the to the the, the old timers reaction to this um, initially because I mean one of the things that I think is 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 many things that I think are interesting about your account is that there there seems to be a rec there doesn't seem to be uh, a lot of. Uh, opinion from the old timers that the the sort of the the building up of the economy around this amenity tourum was a bad choice. They seem to recognize that the place had to do something in order to bring in money, 
but then they start to have often very complicated and sometimes very negative perceptions of those changes. So can you, and I know there's a lot of variation there, but can you maybe characterize what you think is, is, is sort of the through line of the old timers reaction to these changes and what that place is like to live in for them? Yeah. I mean, I think you really captured it in a lot of ways. It is, it's complex, right? Because as you said, mostly people understood that tourism saved this place um, and that they didn't have a lot of options at the time, you know, as the, as local industries were declining, it really seemed like their best bet. And, and contextually, you know, at this time period, rural communities across the country were being told, this is your future. This is what you should invest in. This will save you. So they, you know, I think they did it very thoughtfully, very intelligently. They were really focused on on sustainable growth and things like that. Um, but yeah, I don't know that they really imagined what the long-term impacts would be, just sort of how far it would go. You know, so I think that was one of the themes I heard a lot of. It's just that it, in the beginning, it was a sustainable industry, but over time, what they felt like was they're, they're being kind of, you know, almost invaded or taken over by newcomers that, um, and the figures bear this out, more than half of the homes in the community now are second homes, are not primary residences. Um, so there's that, you know, that, that the scale of it sort of got away from them in ways that people were not entirely comfortable with, and particularly when it came to things like housing and its availability. But also, I think the social dynamics took a long time um, to look the way they they do now. So people told me, you know, in the beginning, in the earlier days of the tourism industry, there weren't that many people coming to stay here long-term. They weren't moving in to the same degree they were just visiting. Um, and they didn't really change the nature of the place. You know, the, the old-timer way of life still kind of dominated for a long time. And people who wanted to move in would have to adapt to them and, and change their lifestyles to be a little bit more um, rural <laughs> in nature. And that was one of the big changes was they felt like in the recent you know decade or two that the places, the, the very nature of these communities was changing, that the, the types of businesses that could stay afloat were changing, um, the attitudes of people were changing. And so, you know, I heard a lot about it just doesn't feel like a small town in the same way anymore. It, no, you know, it's not this place where everybody knows your name. And, you know, I heard so many stories about, oh, in the old days, if you did something wrong, your parents heard about it before you even got home. You know, everybody knew everybody's business. And that can have downsides for sure. But people really liked feeling like part of a community. And they would tell me a lot about in the old days, you always waved when you saw anyone, when you passed anyone in the car or on the street, everybody waved at everybody. And, and this wave was so important to them. And it had diminished over time um, as the community grew, as people didn't know each other and recognize each other because they were maybe new to town. The waves stopped happening. (laughs) Um, And for a lot of old timers, this was a a really kind of tangible symbol of of their own marginalization in their community. The fact that people didn't acknowledge them anymore, that they, they weren't treated as if they were an integral part of the community in the way they once were. And, and so I heard a lot about that. I, I also heard about, you know, just on the ground, how use of land was changing, um, how there's, you know, a, a change from land being something that you produce off of to land being something that you protect um, and keep in some pristine form in a natural form. Um which I think, you know, many people would see as a, a net positive, but 
on the ground, what it felt like was fences going up and, and no trespassing signs going up. And, and this place that they had seen as kind of commonly held was suddenly individually held and you were barred from walking in that place or running your cattle through that place and uh, increasingly places that people had used or visited regularly were closed off from them. And so there was, again, this sense of, of being, um, you know, just excluded from what you thought of as your home. And they really thought of it as a holistic, the valley as their home, not just, you know, the land that you individually own. So that was a, a really big change in kind of orientation towards land use as well. So, you know, on the one hand, you can imagine that if the trade-off for this were were a thriving economy with with an abundance of of well-paying jobs that provided some upward mobility for the old timers, then maybe you could consider that that trade-off was worth it. That is not the case, however. Correct? Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Um, and I think it was really the hope, um, and it is kind of the false hope of amenity tourism. Is you know, there's this idea it will bring economic growth. Well, it, it does. It does bring growth, but that growth is not evenly shared. Um, and the types of jobs that amenity tourism tends to create are really clustered in the service sector um, and to some degree in you know construction of new homes. But um, service sector jobs, by and large, tend to be insecure. They tend to be seasonal. Um, many of them are part time and they're not well paid. You know, these are mostly minimum wage jobs that don't come with any kind of benefits. And one of the biggest frustrations for a lot of old timers was that it, you couldn't you couldn't support a family easily anymore on a single earner. Um, and that is a really big change from those kind of forest products industries of the past. The fact that a single male earner could no longer support the family was really frustrating for a lot of men. Um, and then on the other hand, a lot of the jobs were just unpleasant. <laughs> you know, they weren't, yeah. they weren't necessarily fun work. They tended to be quite insecure. It was, you know, easy to lose them. <laughs> and you got laid off for large sections of the year, which for newcomers was often not a huge hardship. A lot of them talked about how great it was to get to go, you know, get a couple months off in the winter and go skiing or whatever. But if you're living hand to mouth, if you're barely making enough to cover the rent, it's a real hardship to lose your job for three months. So how were people getting by? Um, they were scrapping <laughs> to a large degree. Yep. I mean, they were, um, you know, they were reliant on more than one earner for sure. Um, they were struggling and a lot of their lives were quite precarious and insecure. Um, a number of the people that I interviewed over the course of the year got evicted um, lost their housing at some point because they struggled with the rent. Um, I, you know, I worked with a lot of people who regularly went to the food bank because they could not afford food regularly. I mean, they, you know, they, the service providers were really, really needed and, and did their best, but there, there was a massive amount of need and, and people struggling with bills and, you know, people talked, even people with full-time year round jobs would talk about like, you know, sometimes we have to, let the internet go for a month or two, or, you know, we don't have cable anymore. So they're giving up things that are, you know, maybe they could see as, as non-essential, but more and more are sort of essential to staying connected to the modern world. So let's talk about the newcomers. What is, what is their experience of Paradise Valley like? 
So for a lot of them, it was also a struggle. Um, it's, you know, it doesn't have a really robust labor market. It, you know, um, a lot of them talked quite a bit about how hard it was to find meaningful and secure work there. Um, where they tended to be much better off was, again, in terms of housing, um, because they were often selling something, you know, in a, in a much more inflated housing market before they moved there. So they, they were much more likely to have their housing either paid off or just, you know, set up in a way that was a lot more affordable because they were coming in often with wealth um, in one form or another. And that wealth mattered. So, you know, as I mentioned, they could survive a seasonal layoff often because their housing costs were lower um, and or because they had savings to fall back on. They had something in the bank that could help get them through. Um, and they often were able to find work that they found meaningful. It just took a little while and, you know, it was maybe not the hours they were hoping for or not quite utilizing their skills as, as much as they were hoping for um, or not the wages they were hoping for. It was, it was often, you know, they, they were underemployed to some degree, but nonetheless often were able to find things that they were happy with. And this was partially because they just had uh, a lot more education and job experience and they were often preferred in the labor market, per, you know, particularly for jobs that required any kind of uh, advanced skills or training. Um, they tended to have what we call soft skills. That's, I mean, that's just sort of, you know, like manners and mannerisms that are preferred in the labor market. So even in industries like construction, they were often preferred because when you're working with very wealthy high-end clients, um, people who are more like them have an easier time communicating. And that was a preference. They tended to be people who were used to routines and schedules and living by a clock, which is also preferred by a lot of employers. Um, so they, they had some, you know, kind of non-economic resources that really helped. And then they also had a lot more help from their own social networks. So they had social networks that um, provided help with things like childcare, help with uh, various chores that came with homesteading and rural living that they might struggle with. Um, they just they tended to have really robust support systems, often because the other people like them also had a lot of resources and, and had time and energy to help one another out. And they, they didn't feel so isolated as a lot of the old timers did and so on their own. So talk to you. You talk uh, a, a bit about what some of the. Uh, heterosexual couples discovered to be sort of a ways in, in which their their sort of 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 West Coast citified gender roles found themselves being examined and in flux a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, this was really fascinating to me. Um, I think you know I've long studied different types of gender interactions within the family, and and I think my expectation moving to a town like this one was that. Um, that, you know, all of these more liberal newcomers would mean that gender became a little bit more flexible or more um, egalitarian uh, than is maybe normal in conservative rural communities. Um, and instead, what I really found for the newcomers was this kind of retrenchment of more traditional gender norms, because so much of the, the structure of the rural place kind of required that. So often it had to do with the labor market itself and, and women were often 
um, working, you know, nonprofit jobs or teaching or things where they had a little bit more flexibility. They might work in a school or something like that, but um, where they had more flexible hours, which meant that they then became kind of the primary uh, child care provider as well. They were the ones who were going to be responsible for picking up the kids after school or things like that. Um, but often um, it was the men who had the more kind of rigid jobs um, and often who had the more secure jobs or the higher paying jobs. So what we saw over time was more women dropping out of the workforce in general and really on both sides because of the labor market itself. Um, but then within just the kind of the daily chores of a household, what a lot of folks also discovered was that rural life requires a lot of of daily maintenance that men might not have been trained for, but they were excited to take on and had more confidence in taking on, um, you know, just skills like building fences or chopping firewood. (laughs) There's a lot of just, you know, manual labor that goes into homesteading, into owning, you know, any kind of acreage. And a lot of these more manual jobs, women didn't really want to learn or didn't know how to do and men either wanted to learn or already had some basic knowledge and so what we found was that um, these couples who had come from cities where they lived very egalitarian lifestyles and they shared all the chores now had these very gendered regimes where uh, the wife was doing a lot of you know the cooking and the cleaning and the child care and the husband or male partner was doing you know the the lawn care and the snow plowing and the wood chopping and, and those kinds of, you know, sort of outdoor masculine jobs that uh, are often, you know, quite physically demanding, but are also um, sometimes not daily chores to the same degree. So it kind of regendered these couples. And for some, it was really frustrating. Um, and women in particular who had come into this community with a long work history and then really struggled to find any kind of job that utilized their skills often felt a little bit frustrated with those situations. So Jennifer, you describe the, the, the newcomers as having uh, what you call a class blindness. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about, about what you mean by that and and how it manifested itself? Yeah. So the, the concept of class blindness um, was really built off of a, another sociological concept, which is that of colorblind racism. And, and this is the idea that um, basically people in the racial majority often don't see race as an issue, but it's really about, you know, sort of not understanding all of your own racial privilege vis-a-vis other groups. And what I saw here was a very similar phenomenon with regard to social class. Um, so as I sort of outlined, you know, as I was describing the difference between the newcomers and the old timers, uh, one of the big differences between these two groups really was that newcomers had a lot of social class privilege. And this took all of these forms. It was it was economic. It was, you know, it's financial privilege, but it was also in terms of education, in terms of cultural norms, in terms of social networks. They had a lot of invisible forms of privilege. Um, and what I found was that they tended not to acknowledge or notice those forms of privilege and not to understand the roles that those forms of privilege played in making their lives quite a bit easier, making it easier for them to navigate the housing market, the labor market, the childcare market, the healthcare market, all of these, all of these rural structures that are sort of, uh, you know, underdeveloped and, and difficult to navigate in various ways. 
they had these legs up because they had these invisible forms of privilege. But the failure to acknowledge that meant it was it was very easy to look at people who weren't doing so well and blame them individually for their own failures. And that was a lot of what I saw going on was just, you know, this failure to understand that this person who's struggling is struggling because they lack the same types of advantage that you have, not because they are lazy, not because they are on drugs, not because they are immoral. Um, but I mean, and you know, they might be one or two or some of the, you know, <laughs> I mean, different people have different issues, but that's not necessarily what's going on. In many cases, they are hardworking and they are trying super hard and they, you know, have it together, but they still can't make it work because they don't have the different advantages. Um, and so what I found was that really undermined people's ability to understand one another's struggles. It really undermined empathy for each other's struggles. And it it undermined the ability to, to work together as a community because you have a group of people with all the advantages kind of keeping them amongst themselves and then blaming the other people for lacking them and you know saying it's your own fault. <laughs> um, and that really was the, the sort of the underlying social dynamic in a lot of ways. Uh, that feels like a perfect segue to the last question I will ask you, which is that you write that that you think that that uh, Paradise Valley tells us something about inequality more broadly uh, at this moment in time in the United States. Um, can you talk a little bit about that for us? Yeah, I mean, I think I think class blindness is not unique to Paradise Valley. You know, it was yep. it was a good place to study it because. Being in a small community like that, you can really dig into these interpersonal um, processes in a way that becomes much more complicated when you're in places with different types of diversity. Um, so in some ways, it was a really great laboratory to study class blindness. But I think it's that alone is a really just widespread issue. I think, you know, it's generally the case throughout America. We don't like to talk about class. We don't like to think about class. We think of ourselves as this society in which everybody has the same access to the American dream. And, and we've long been fed these myths about, you know, individual achievement and the ability of anyone to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And, and it does make it very easy to blame somebody else for that failure. If they, if they don't have all the advantages you do, um, I think it's a very American <laughs> phenomenon to, to assume it's an individual failure rather than a systemic one. So I think that, um, is a really widespread phenomenon. Um, but I think also the types of confusion and frustration and even anger that you see from the old timers are also really common across America right now and, and fueling, you know, not just social divides, but many of the political divides and the lack of trust amongst Americans when you can't quite put your finger on what's happened but you know you've lost access to, to that version of the American dream that, that you were sold, um, it becomes really hard to, to figure out who's to blame for that. Um, and we're given all sorts of folk devils to blame, um, but it, it fuels a sense of loss and a sense of anger and a sense of frustration that I think is also uh, quite endemic across the U.S. right now. You've been listening to the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and we have been speaking with Jennifer Sherman, who has been talking to us about her new book, Dividing Paradise, Rural Inequality and the Diminishing American Dream, uh, new out from the University of California Press. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure was all mine. Thank you. Thank you.